Just a heads up before we begin this episode, the Baron of Botox deals with difficult topics, including depression and suicide. It is not recommended for young audiences. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for information on resources for anyone who is suffering from depression or suicidal thoughts. Let's begin the show. But now I'm going to Michelle Mybell in South Carolina. How are you doing, Michelle? Hey, Dr. Brandt. What a pleasure it is to speak with you today. It's my pleasure to have you on the line. I love your voice. You're so cheery and up. I love a little, you know, I love people that are up. One of the things I wanted to ask, what were the latest procedures that celebrities were using? Because um, I see, you know, I see the vampire. I, I don't remember what it was called. It was like a vampire. The segment you just heard is from a 2014 episode of Ask Dr. Brandt, a call-in skincare advice series that aired on Sirius XM Stars Channel 107 from 2011 to 2015. An official press release for the program reads, For over 20 years, Dr. Brandt has helped bold-faced names in the worlds of entertainment, business, fashion, and society maintain their youthful visages using a variety of non-invasive procedures, many of which he pioneered. The caller, Michelle, wants to know about something called a vampire facelift a turbocharged version of that bloody facial Kim Kardashian once got on national TV. It involves injecting both hyaluronic acid filler and PRP, plasma-rich platelets, under the skin. Because I live in South Carolina, are those procedures that the celebrities are using attainable here in South Carolina, or do oh, we have to go somewhere like New York or L.A.? Well, you know, I'd love to have you come to my office in New York or Miami, and you're always welcome. But most of these procedures are performed everywhere. But you have to go to a board-certified, qualified dermatologist who has a lot of experience in this. What I'm doing, I'm actually doing a study on something newer in my office where we're, incub- we're taking blood, but we're not using PRP. We're incubating your plasma special way. Something that separated Dr. Brandt from his peers was the extent to which he revered and understood the science behind the beauty. In his Miami offices, he had a large research facility dedicated to hosting clinical trials on new procedures. Every year, hundreds of patients would allow Dr. Brandt and his team to use them as guinea pigs in FDA trials for not-yet-approved treatments, including Botox, Restylane, Perlane, and Sculptra. In an industry of copycats, Fred Brandt was a bona fide original. From Imperative Entertainment, I'm Justine Harmon, and this is The Baron of Botox, Episode 3, Spin Doctor. Okay, so the product in the, the 80s, 80s was a product where you injected, you took the blood and spun it down and you injected it with porcine collagen powder, pig collagen powder. This is never before heard audio of Dr. Brandt and the journalist Holly Malay from June 2011. Holly and I met when I was an editor at Elle and she had a long running column called Beauty Adventure. On this recording, she and Dr. Brandt are talking about something called fibroblast the same procedure he was discussing with the caller Michelle at the top of this episode. At the time, Dr. Brandt had partnered with a guy named John Mislowski, the vice president of operations at a company called Fibrocell. 
Together, they had dubbed the treatment the first and only cell-based biologic product approved for aesthetics. Though the product had not yet been approved by the FDA, you can tell how excited Dr. Brandt is by the prospect of having it on the market. He's practically giddy. So basically what we're doing in this process is we're taking fibroblasts from the patient and growing them. And we know there's a lot of important characteristics of fibroblasts. Fibroblasts are the collagen-producing cells in your skin. And for this product, we know that for certain they're producing collagen. But in the skin, we also know fibroblasts produce elastin. And elastin is a substance that gives your skin the stretch. elasticity. It's yeah. stretched back, helps it keep from sagging. And we know that elastin in humans stops being produced in adolescence. So once you're past your adolescence, early adolescence, you don't produce any more naturally occurring elastin. He goes on to describe the process in great detail. A piece of skin the size of an eraser head is removed from behind the ear and then farmed for these fibroblast cells, which are then fertilized in vitamins to force the cells to divide and reproduce, cryogenically frozen, and then injected into the face via over 100 micro-injections over the course of multiple treatments. Got it? In a corresponding journal entry from that day, Holly wrote, Hot today, even Truman, her long-haired chihuahua, felt drugged by the heat. Of the interview, she scribbled, Dr. Brandt meeting, spitting on me as he was talking. He has so much filler in his lips. So sad. As predicted, the product, which was officially named Lviv, got approved by the FDA 11 days later. So why am I telling you all of this? Aside from the fact that it's all little, I don't know, black mirror meets the twilight zone? Because there are so many inside baseball things at play here. This isn't just a story about one man. It's a story about marketing and myth-making, about psychology and advertising. And it's a lot like that moment in The Devil Wears Prada when Miranda Priestly talks about the trickle-down effect of cerulean blue. As in, you think you're wearing a blue sweater, because whatever. But actually, there are greater forces at hand. That blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs. And it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when, in fact, you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room. Dr. Brandt wasn't just innovative. He was an inventor. And all inventors see the world not how it is, but how it's going to be. Whether that's in 11 days or 11 years. I'm Linda Wells, and I'm the founding editor-in-chief of Allure magazine, and more recently, the founder of Flesh Beauty, a makeup line. For those of you who don't know Linda Wells, she's pretty much the Miranda Priestly of the beauty world. And when Linda started out in the industry in the 80s, and even when she went on to found Allure magazine in 1991, cosmetic interventions were considered taboo, obvious, and kind of desperate. Silicone was injected as a filler in lips and in wrinkles, and it was wrapped with problems and side effects and, you know, famous stories of people whose faces were distorted. The silicone would harden. It would cause real disfigurement. And there was some actress in Hollywood who, older actress in Hollywood who had it done, who um, I guess essentially had to go into hiding because she never could get it fixed. 
there was a lot of negative stories, a lot of bad news, a lot of skepticism and danger attached to the whole idea of injecting your wrinkles. And it sounded very sci-fi and really wrong. When we last left off in Newark, young Fred Brandt was still eating hamburgers from a square skillet and dreaming of escaping his average, if not Rothian, existence. His senior yearbook page described him like this. Scholarly, with an infectious grin and good sense of humor, and predicted a medical career ahead. After graduating from Rutgers and then med school in Philly, Fred relocated to New York City, where he completed his residency in internal medicine at NYU from 1976 to 1978. It's during this period, the era of Taxi Driver, Jimmy Carter, Diana Ross, Queen, and the Fonz, that he met an oncology nurse named Karen McDonald. Karen, Fred, and their married friends Wilma and Sal became something of a foursome. One time, Karen and Freddie even went on a date to the movies. It wasn't exactly what you call a match made in heaven. You know, he was shy. He was awkward. He wasn't, he didn't make small talk easily. And he, he certainly wasn't any kind of a player, you know, type of thing. So, yeah, but we did. We took the Third Avenue bus uptown. I can't remember what we saw. But I remember Wilma and Sal were kind of making jokes about it. Like, you know, you, oh, I hope Freddie can handle you. Or, you know, like, you're, you know, you're so out of Freddie's league or something silly like that. And I remember he was dressed like he would always kind of be dressed awkwardly, kind of a schleppy, like button down shirt over like, you know, not cool in, in, in any sense. And being young and stupid as I probably was, you know, I was always like a little self-conscious about the way he looked. I can't tell you how shy and how completely self-effacing this person was. He was like a mouse, like a little mouse. You know, he just would be in a group. He'd be the last person to speak. He always looked completely awkward in terms of appearance. He was slight. He was almost balding, as I recall, even as a young guy. And almost, you know, in those days, I was I was like a kid. I was like, I don't know, 21 or 22. And of course, I was very appearance conscious, you know. And his appearance was always a little bit, you know, not embarrassing, but, you know, he was nerdy. He was awkward. Did you have any idea that he was gay? No, that's no, I didn't. I was pretty I had no idea. Um, And I don't recall. I don't ever recall Wilma or Sal alluding to the fact that he was gay either, to be honest with you. It was just more that Freddie is just so shy and, you know, that kind of thing. And I remember it was almost awkward. You could see he was not comfortable really eating, you know, and I just attributed it to the fact that he was just like a shy kind of nerdy guy. It didn't even occur to me that he might be gay. The two lost touch around 78. Karen moved to Florida, got married, and by the time she moved back to Manhattan, he'd already left for Miami. The metamorphosis into Dr. Brandt had begun. Schleppy Freddy? Yeah, that guy was old news. I know there were very few people who did know him before his ascent to, like, superstardom and whoever he eventually became. But I can't, you know, it was such a long time ago But for years, I kept thinking it can't be the same person. And then I did my research and I was like, it is the same person. I cannot believe this. By 1978, he had relocated to South Florida to complete his second residency, this time in dermatology. Beth Abramson Breyer, his old pal Roberta's eldest daughter, remembers visiting Coconut Grove with her parents. My family went on vacation and we saw him in Coconut Grove. And he was just beginning to get a following. And he was 
been talking to us a lot about skincare and covering our heads and with, with white hats and towels and not sitting out in the sun. Beth was in high school when they went to visit Freddie, who she'd always considered something like a fun uncle. He was still dressing conservatively in the button-downs and jeans that all the men were wearing back then. She says people weren't really wearing designer clothes in the 70s anyway, not in her world. His hair, which was still dark, was thinning a bit. But despite his living in southern Florida, Freddie was luminously pale. I remember when we got to Florida, I think it was our spring break, and you know, we've been in New Jersey all winter. I remember my mother saying, go out in the sun, it's going to be so good for you. We were always told it was good for us. And we got there, and here he was. And my sisters and I were looking at each other like, he's this in Florida. Why is he so pale? Why is he sitting in the sun? The first time I'd ever heard really anybody you know, say, this is, this is not good for you. And even my, even my parents, they weren't convinced. They thought he looked pale and he should get out in the sun more. Beth also remembers that it was the first and only time Freddie was open about being involved with another man. I don't think he had ever come out to my parents. And I think this was his first time coming out. And my sisters, I happened to be there. I was a little bit older than my sisters. And he told my parents, I'm living with a dancer named Jeffrey. And then I think my parents, no matter how much you try to deny anything, I think then that was, there was no question at that point. And at that point, I was old enough to know what homosexuality was. So I got it. It didn't even faze me. I was thinking, well, of course, like, who would he be with otherwise? The romance with Jeffrey didn't last. And by many accounts, Fred Brandt never found himself in a serious relationship again. Some of his closest friends have never even heard of Jeffrey. I mean, he, he definitely had some romantic interludes or involvements, a couple of which ended, you know, in a hard way for him. This is Jonah Shacknai, the former chairman, founder, and chief executive of a company called Metasys, which developed and introduced the filler Restylane in the U.S. Jonah doesn't really come into the picture for another decade or so, but I like the way he contextualizes the matter of Fred's sexuality. So he stays. He was an unusual guy. I mean, had he been born 20 years later, he would have lived a very different life. But, you know, there are a lot of people like that that are friends and have sort of straddled two worlds, the world of uh, pretense and who they actually are. And I think that's very, I'm sure they contributed to whatever neuroses or worse that the guy possessed because I think it's probably tough to live that way. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. By March of 1980, Frederick Brandt was a board-certified physician. That same year, after testing its effects on monkeys, Dr. Alan B. Scott out of San Francisco published a study on the effectiveness of injecting a substance called botulinum toxin to alleviate strabismus, or crossed eyes, and eyelid spasms. In 1986, when Alan was temporarily unable to supply the product out of his lab due to liability issues, the New York Times published a piece titled Loss of Drug Relegates Many to Blindness Again. At the time, the field of cosmetic dermatology especially in Miami, was the wild, wild west. One person I spoke to described it like this. Miami had weeds in the middle of the city. As in, it was a good place to get lost and a great place to reinvent yourself. If you didn't want to go under the knife back then, 
The only available treatments were dermabrasion, which would leave a patient raw and wrapped in bandages, chemical peels, or micro drops of silicone. Botox was still a blinker salve. There was no such thing as filler. Sculptra, the first product approved by the FDA to combat against HIV-induced facial wasting, wouldn't come to market for another 20 years. A colleague of Dr. Brandt's, who met him back when they were both starting out in the 80s, described their clientele, people willing to let them inject unproven substances into their faces as either the very wealthy or people who were crazy. With age-erasing beauty treatments, Dr. Brandt and his fellow fledgling cosmetic dermatologist found what some might now call a hole in the market. And in the thrum of a weedy city, among the endless chaos of the AIDS crisis and of sexually active gay men dropping like flies, as a former colleague put it, products that could smooth pulled skin or plump up hollowed cheeks, well, that could make you king. Linda Wells, the founding editor of Allure magazine, didn't hear about Botox until the 90s, more than 10 years after its nerve-freezing properties had been discovered. I heard about this, people were talking about it, and um, how it could make your wrinkles go away. And the whole notion of botulinum toxin seemed so completely crazy, like uh, the movie Brazil, that it was hard to imagine that this would be a real thing. So it was very buzzy and, uh, and bizarre. And um, then I went to Paris for the couture show and I met with, I had lunch with a friend who was a Saudi millionaire, billionaire, Saudi billionaire was what she was. And we were having this lovely lunch and afterward she said, I'm going to the doctor, come with me, I want you to see this. So I went with her to a dermatologist's office. It was above the Baccarat store, the boutique, which was kind of bizarre in itself. And we got in there and she said, I'm getting Botox. And so I sat there and watched her get Botox. And then she said, I would like to give you a gift and I will give you Botox. And I think I was 32 or 33. And I thought, no, don't do that. That's the most irresponsible thing you could ever do. And I said, yeah, sure, thanks. I'll take that. So I got my Botox for the first time. But even though Botox was a relatively painless outpatient procedure, those who were in the know went to great lengths to keep their use of it on the down low. I would get my Botox in my forehead and was secretive about it. In fact, I went to a dermatologist, and while I was waiting in her waiting room, a reporter from Time magazine was showing up. And it would actually turn out to be someone I worked with when I was at Vogue. And the dermatologist very nicely said, get into this office right now before this reporter shows up in the in the waiting room. And I'm very grateful that she did. Of course, now I wouldn't care one bit. But at the time, it was like a little scandalous, a little inappropriate. So um, people hid the fact that they got Botox. But then all of a sudden, there was a shift. P.T. Barnum had arrived at the circus. This buzz started going around this event that Fred Brandt was there. It was a little bit unkind because it was to get a look at this person who had experimented on himself. And so his face was distorted and unusual looking, but also that he had this reputation as being somewhat of a magician, an alchemist with these injectables. Not long thereafter, I switched from my usual dermatologist to Fred Brandt. Linda liked his artistry, the way he saw the face and its contours. But she also liked the way he brought the practice out of the shadows. Fred had a way of working where you never felt awkward and you never felt 
uh, that someone was inappropriate or just like, or the discomfort of someone being that close to you. Part of what he did was he would tell these really corny jokes and he would laugh at them with this honking laugh that was that he got a kick out of them and you just had to go along with it because it was so silly. And then he'd have show tunes on on the speaker system and, and he would sing along to the show tunes while he was doing things or else he would narrate what he was doing sometimes with language and sometimes with a line from a Stephen Sondheim musical. It made the experience really fun and really whimsical and not really not painful and not awkward. And actually, it took away some of the intimacy of it. It felt like an everyday experience. It was just a lighthearted moment that you're having with someone. And rather than this like intense examination and who are you and how do you look? Do you look old? I mean, do you look old is a really scary thing for someone who is aging, as we all are every minute. But but it is one of those things that, you know, nobody wants to look older than their age and no one wants to grow old gracelessly. We all want to grow old gracefully. What does that mean? That's a thorny topic, too. But I think that Fred relieved the experience of all of those weighted issues. And it wasn't irresponsible. We all knew what we were getting into by going and getting these things done. And we knew the risks and the... But but it was just that he managed to make everybody feel like this was normal and there was no awkwardness and he wasn't judging you. Dr. Brandt took something shameful, caring about the way you look, and made it feel appropriate. And then he pushed it further. What I didn't know was that Fred Brandt was doing things that were not entirely, they were off-label was really what they were. So he was experimenting with Botox, using it in other parts of the face, not just the forehead. And he figured out ways to place Botox in other parts of the face that would give it a little lift. He found a way to put it under the nose. He found a way to put it around the eyes. I remember sitting there and thinking, stick a needle in your eye. You know, this is crazy. I'm like sitting here with this needle going right under my eye. But he did these things and he figured out how to do them so that they could create this more lifted, balanced face. And he analyzed it and he did it on himself. Put it in your neck so that your cords of your neck didn't look so ropey. Fred would say, I'll put a tip of Botox in your nose or something on the top of your cheeks. And then he'd hand you the mirror and he'd say, look. And I'd look at myself and I'd think, all I can see are a bunch of pinpricks all over my face. I cannot see a lifted nose. But I am not one who really examines myself in the mirror, and I prefer not to if I can. He would say those things, and I didn't really notice it, but I was far more preoccupied with the fact that I had little pricks of blood all over my face and thought, how am I going to get out of this office and into a cab without, you know, looking like a freak? By 1994, Dr. Brandt had a new office in Boca Raton, a major upgrade from the second-floor clinic he had next door to a public supermarket and was frequently flying to New York to treat patients. It was around that time that he met Dr. Jonathan Levine, a cosmetic dentist from whom he would later sublet office space. The two doctors were introduced by a publicist named Deborah J. Scarpa. Deborah declined to be interviewed for the series, but confirmed via email that her firm, DJS Marketing, was with Fred from the beginning. 
She says that it was because of her that he met with Top Editors Plus, she says. We got his products into Bergdorf Goodman and then Neiman's. Here's Dr. Levine. Through someone in Florida who, who was doing uh, PR for Dr. Brandt, her name is Deborah Scarpa. She introduced me to Fred. And uh, Fred came up to New York, and uh, we basically agreed. He, he would use the space a couple of times a month. He would come up, and it was very early days of filler and Botox. And he would utilize my practice, which very similar setups in the operatories for derm, vetic dentistry, and plastic surgery, very similar. It didn't take Dr. Levine long to realize he was in the presence of something and someone special. Oftentimes I would watch him do what he's doing, and I was fascinated um, by what he, what he did and uh, the response of his patients, which were basically enthralled and couldn't wait for him to be back in New York. The enthusiasm by the patient was amazing. And early days of Botox was getting understood as to how to use an application. Fred was very much the pioneer of the Botox in these techniques. And his patients absolutely, what I remember very well, vividly, is absolutely adored him from the standpoint of what he was delivering. Because what he was delivering was the very early days. It was unique. He didn't have a lot of people doing what he did. I mean, the excitement of the patient, you could kind of forecast out that this was something big. This was something that's going to be, that was big and, and going to get bigger. The Baron of Botox is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Justine Harmon. Executive producer is Jason Hoke. Produced and engineered by Shane Freeman, with additional editing from Jasmine Cross and Jason Hoke. Original music by Brandon Bush. Barbara Keene is our researcher and fact checker. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. The Baron of Botox is a 10-episode series with new episodes available every Tuesday. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you or someone you know is struggling from depression, find local support and more resources by visiting NAMI, N-A-M-I dot org. If you are having suicidal thoughts, you can reach a trained crisis counselor by calling the toll-free National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-TALK or texting NAMI, N-A-M-I to 741-741. You are not alone. Thank you for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.